The title of our sermon today is The Necessity of Regeneration. The Necessity of Regeneration. Our key words for our worshipers in training are flesh and spirit and regeneration. Flesh and spirit and regeneration. I want to begin by going to our text from last week. We were talking about Jesus cleansing the temple, and there was a very powerful statement made at the very end of last week's text. I want to read that over for you again before we get into today's text, just to remind you of what some background and what we're working with this week. So if you will, let's look at that passage in John 2, John 2, verses 23 through 25. And this is what it said, now he, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover. During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, this is a very powerful statement because what it's telling us is that when Jesus went in and cleansed that temple out, as Jesus had turned water into wine the week we saw before, Jesus was going around and starting to do these miracles and starting to show the people that he truly is the Son of God and that he has been empowered by his Father to come and claim a kingdom for his father, to claim a kingdom for his people. As he's doing these things, there are many people that are witnessing these signs. Remember we talked about how in the book of John specifically, the word sign is used a lot. And signs point us to directions. We are to stop, we are to yield, we are to go, we are to turn right only, turn left only, uh, right? Speed limit signs give us directions. Don't go over this speed. And so these signs that Jesus was giving were proof that he was who he said he was. And what we're seeing is, is that many, many people were believing. Many, it said many believed in his name observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, when we talk about Jesus and believing in his name, Jesus' name is who he is. It's his promise. You sign your name to a, a D or to a, a, a loan that you make. You say, I promise that I will pay this money back, right? And we sign our names to thing. We put our names to thing. Some of you in this room have children. Your children are carrying your name on. So our name is who we are, and Jesus' name is who he is. Jesus' name includes his promise. And so many of these people were seeing the signs that he was doing, and they were believing in his name. They were believing in his promises. So it is not that signs and miracles are not used of God to draw people to himself. He does use miracles to catch people's attention. But what truly saves a person is not a sign, but the very word of God itself. The promise of God is what saves people. And if you see in that next verse there, in verse 23, it said, but Jesus, so it says, these people were believing on Jesus, but then it immediately says, but Jesus was not believing them. And each and every one of us in this room know that you do not show the true you to most folks. 
we generally don't even show the true you to ourselves, right? We often live in self-deception. How many of you like to hear yourself on a recording? That's not how I sound. Well, yes, it is. It's a recording. It's exactly how you sound, right? And, and, and we, we tend to wax over or coat over the things that we don't like about ourselves. We're, we're self-deceived. But Jesus is not deceived by any man. And so the simple fact that somebody believes in Jesus, it's important for us to believe in Jesus, but more importantly is that Jesus believes in us. When I go and I was baptized as a child, I said, I'm going to die to self and live for you, God. You remember how excited you was when you come out of that water boy, for the next, you never missed church, you always read your Bible, you always prayed, you were on fire for the Lord. And then that slowly kind of fades away, doesn't it? Right? Well, Jesus is not only looking at your heart, but he's looking at your life. He's looking at our life. He's looking at all of that self-deception within us. He's looking at all of our, our flaws. Why? Not to condemn us, but to save us from them. He brings those things up to us and reminds us of those things so that we will turn away from them and turn back to him. But these people were seeing him and they were believing on him, but it says Jesus was not trusting himself to them. So there's a lot of people in that crowd that are seeing Jesus doing what he's doing and they're believing on him and wanting to follow him. But it said Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. And then last week we looked at two verses in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8.39. And 1 Kings 8.39 said this, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all of his ways, whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God alone knows the hearts of all the sons of men. How many of you have had a friend uh, just casually say, well, God knows my heart? That should terrify us. It's not an out for acting the way we act. Yes, God does know our hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. And then look at Jeremiah 17, 9. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah saying, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? How many of you have looked back and said, why did I do that? Well, you did it because your heart told you to. It was what you wanted to do at the time. You might not have wanted the repercussions, but there's not a single one of us in here that is guilty of not doing what we want to do. Let me say that again. There's not a single one of us in this room that is not guilty of doing what we want to do. And that is the problem. Why? So not only do you hear people casually say, well, God knows my heart, but you will hear people give advice and say this, follow your heart. Jeremiah says, your heart is desperately wicked and sick. Why in the world would you want to follow that? We, we, we make the statement that we give our hearts to Jesus. Well, the reality is, and what we're going to find out today is, it's not so important that you give your heart to Jesus. That is important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, is that Jesus gives you a new heart. 
You see? So there is a necessity in regeneration. All right, let's turn to today's text. We'll read this. Um, In your bulletin, it says John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Um, I made an error there. We're going to do John 3, verses 1 through 7. We're not going to go all the way to 9. So John 3, verses 1 through 7, it says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can he? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus said, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That's the sign that's out on the book with Marquee out here today. And for next week, we're going to leave that up again. I think I've a couple of quick prefaces to our sermon today. The first time I preached to you guys, I used this text. The first sermon that y'all ever allowed me the privilege to preach here, I use this text. What must I do to be saved? You must be born again. Now, and in that sermon, I used an illustration about a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield is one of the greatest evangelists that ever uh, walked uh, around in, in the United States and preached the gospel. And he and John Wesley were dear friends. They both established that Bethesda Boys Home that we know out there uh, on Skidaway Island. And uh, George Whitfield preached thousands and thousands of sermons and hundreds of thousands of people have been attributed to his being saved through his proclamation of the gospel. And one of his favorite sermons was, you must be born again. And so he went into this little small town, and after the service, a a man came up to him, and he said, Mr. Whitfield, he said, the last time I heard you about four years ago, you just preached that same sermon. You must be born again. Why did you preach the same sermon again? And Whitfield's answer to the man was, you must be born again. You see, I felt kind of bad about using this text again because I had already used it one time. And, but in the life of Christ through a harmony of the gospel, this is where we're at. And then I got to remember, and you know, we are some hard-headed and some hard-hearted folks. How many times did you have to tell your kid something before they finally got it? And sometimes it's 20 or 30 years later, and then they finally say, oh, that's what you meant. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been sitting in a Bible study or a Sunday school class or listening to a sermon and go, that's what that meant. And it was something that somebody explained to me 30 years ago, and it went right over my head. And so I prayed about it, and I do not at all feel bad about this sermon because every one of us in this room 
needs to understand that there is a necessity of regeneration. We have to be born again. And if you're in this room today and you truly are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, it is because you have been born again. And in that, you can find assurance and hope and thankfulness. God reached down into a world full of people that did not deserve anything but hell and said, nope, I love you too much to let you keep living that way. And he created in you a new heart. You were born again, you see? And so this text is very important. Let's look at it together. We've already read through the text. So let's look at verse 1, Nicodemus. uh, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, Nicodemus is a very important character in Scripture, but he is only talked about in the book of John. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't see uh, Nicodemus. It's only in the book of John that we see him. And Nicodemus stands, for me and you, as a representation of the old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion, right? And, and the reality is, remember when we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, we talked about how the water was a symbol of the dead orthodoxy of Judaism. Without God's spirit in it, it is nothing but dead orthodoxy. And so Nicodemus is a picture of this old religion, and Jesus is coming in, and he is shaking the rafters of the temple. You have the religion, but you don't have the spirit that brought you that religion, and you don't have the power of that spirit who brought you that religion. That's what Nicodemus and all of his people are beginning to see. There's something about this guy, Jesus. There's one story in there where Jesus heals a blind man and nobody, even his own family, won't admit that God has healed his sight. And so the Pharisees come to this blind man and they said, uh, <clears throat> you know, who healed you? And, and, uh, uh, they, and he said, Jesus. And they said, well, he's a blasphemer. And said, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but this I do know. I couldn't see and now I see. And what he was saying to that Pharisee was all of that religion, I've been sitting outside of this temple for 40 years and no one has ever come up to me and gave me sight. You pray the prayers, you walk the walk, you wear the clothes, you talk the talk, but you don't have the power of God in you. Why? Because the spirit of God was not in them. And so Nicodemus is a representation of that old way. Now, one of the things that we do know is that Nicodemus has come to Jesus. And that's important. Because Jesus tells us that I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice and when they hear me, what do they do? They follow. And sometimes that following takes a little encouragement, doesn't it? Sometimes we hear truth and we don't quite believe it when we first hear it. And then it begins to make more and more sense as we grow closer to God and we walk with him. And so what's happening is Nicodemus is seeing something in this Jesus that he has not seen in any of his, his fellows. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's one of the highest of all of the Pharisees. And not only that, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly at each other's uh, throats. And one of the truths it is, is, one of the backstories is, is that the Pharisees, the Sadducees were the ones that really ran the temple. They were the politically affluent people of the day. They were the mayors and the town councilmen and the, and the officials, you see. And so they kind of ran the temple. And so there's a very good likelihood that 
uh, Nicodemus as being a Pharisee, as being a, a teacher of the law, as being one who, who studies God and knows God and, and is very religious, there's a part of him that probably appreciated Jesus coming in and running all of those people out of the temple. But now he has come to Jesus because he's seen something in Jesus that he has not seen in that temple in all the years that he's been there. And we need to see that ourselves. So remember, Jesus is drawing his people to himself. And when he calls his people, when he calls you by name, what do you do? You respond. You come. And so he's coming to Jesus. And what we'll see in the coming years is that Nicodemus is actually going to become a believer. And these are the very first signs that he is going to come. Because we see later on in John chapter 7, we see where uh, the people are trying to arrest Jesus and Nicodemus speaks up and goes, wait, 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 don't we have to allow him to speak for himself before we condemn him? And they looked at Nicodemus and said, are you from Galilee too? So at one point in his life, he's literally willing to stand up among his peers and kind of stand up for Jesus a little bit. And then at the end of the story, when after Joseph of Arimathea has got all of these spices and he's getting ready to go and to prepare the body of Jesus, guess who's with him? Nicodemus. You see? And so we see in this story God's work of regeneration and how it first starts with these questions and it starts with these seeking of God. Only those who God is seeking will ever seek God. Because the human heart, the fallen human heart, the unregenerate human heart, doesn't want anything to do with God. There are still traits, even if you're in this room today and you're a believer, there's traces of that in your life. Compare reading your Bible for an hour. Here's one better. Compare sitting in a church service for an hour and a half to watching a two-hour movie. How quick does that two hours go in a movie that you're watching that you're interested in? It keeps you captivated. You might even watch the, the scenes at the end to find out who the actors were in it. Hang around and see what ha- who, 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 who made this movie. But in our fallen nature, even as Christians, even as believers, we get into a church service and we get dozy. Right? It's hard to focus sometimes. I understand that. I don't hold it against any of you. Because I would do the same. I'm very capable of losing sight of what really matters. And that's in a person who has the Spirit of God living in them. Imagine your lost loved ones who doesn't know the Spirit of God. Imagine how hard it is for them to sit in a service and listen and pay attention. But when they come, that word goes out and he is drawing a people to himself. And there's a lot of lost people out there that he's yet to draw. And they're coming. We need to make sure we're sharing that truth. But so we see this drawing of Nicodemus and this growing in his life of his beginning to trust in Jesus. In verse 2, it says this. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there is much speculation on this visitation at night. Some people say that he was afraid that his friends, his colleagues at the temple would see him go and talk to Jesus and he didn't want to get 
shame for going and listening to what Jesus had to say. So he kind of snuck in there at nighttime so that nobody else see. It's mere speculation. We don't, we don't know why he came at night. Um, a lot of times rabbis like to stay up all t- hours of the night discussing theology. Maybe that was just an appropriate time. He knew he would find Jesus at his house in. We're not, we don't know the reason why he went at night. Um, and there's also some symbolism there. Uh, Nicodemus is in the dark. Jesus is the light. He is coming to the light to be lit up, if you will. So you can, you can infer that. None of that is implied in the text, but all of it is there for you to meditate on and think about. Why did Nicodemus come? Well, the real reality is, is because he saw and he heard Jesus. And there's something different about Jesus. So he says to Jesus, he says, we know that you have come from God. No man can do the kind of things that you're doing unless God is with him. So when he says we know, that can mean several different things too. He may have been sent by a delegate of the Pharisees to go investigate this Jesus guy. Or he may be hiding behind the fact that he's a Pharisee. And wanting to like know Jesus, but not wanting to let go of his old religion yet. So he's speaking in generalities about all of the Pharisees. We know that the things that you're doing, and that's what he's saying. Look, we know this. There's nobody in our temple. There's none of our religious crowd that is able to do the signs that you're doing. We know that you have come from God. The truth of the matter is, is when you share the gospel with your lost neighbors, when God is at work convicting of their hearts, they will know that what you're saying is the truth. They might not like it, but they're going to know it's true. But we don't know. We don't know. Is he speaking in just a generality about the Pharisees in general? Or is he speaking, hiding behind the fact that he is a Pharisee? Or has he been actually sent by the Pharisees to come? We don't know. It's, you just have to guess that on your own. But what we do know is this. He has been drawn to Christ through what he's seen, what he's heard. And we know that he's in the right place. Right? Remember what Jesus told his disciples earlier and a couple weeks ago? Our, our sermon was what? Come and see. Come and see. And that is exactly what Nicodemus is doing here. We know that God is at work in his life because he is coming to see. Simple little invite you can give your neighbor. Hey, come and see what we got going on. Come and see. Come and see Jesus at work in our lives. And I pray that that's something that we delight in. Right? Come and see what Jesus is doing for us. All right. And what we're doing for him. So there's much speculation. We don't know why. Um, But he does recognize the sign and he does realize that Jesus has come from God. When they nail him to the cross, when the Pharisees nail him to the cross, they're willfully suppressing the reality of who Jesus is. They know he's different. They know he's from God. They know it. So verse 3 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to watch what's happening here. First of all, he uses the statement, truly, truly. And in the book of John... There's, I think it's about six or seven times that he uses this statement. It may even be more. But another way to say that is amen, amen. Yes. If I say something that you agree with, you can say what? Amen. amen. <coughs> that means what you're saying is true. 
So Jesus is saying, what I'm fixing to say, anytime you're reading in the book of John and you come across truly, truly, or I'm in, I'm in. Some of the translations use I'm in, I'm in. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So watch what he's done. Nicodemus is wanting to have a theological talk. Hey, we know that you've come from God because the thing that you're doing, nobody can do. But instead of getting into a theological discussion, Jesus is fixed to say, Nicodemus, you're blind. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now think about this. What did Nicodemus say? We saw the signs that you did. And what did Jesus say? You're blind, Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So not only does Jesus just skip all the niceties and he gets to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You must be born again. Your heart must be regenerated. Your heart must be made alive. And that's what he's telling Nicodemus. He doesn't talk about all the theology. He says, Nicodemus, your heart is blinding you to the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Another way to say that word born again is born from above. If you translate it from the original languages, it means born from above. Every one of us in this room was born from below. We have a mommy and we were pushed out. We were born here on this earth. But what Jesus is saying is you must be born from above. The gift of life has to come down from heaven and give you life. You must be born again or you cannot see. What is it called when we can't see? We're blind. The kingdom of God. I mentioned this a couple times and we need to understand that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it both means the same thing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a prevalent theme all through the harmony of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make sure that we understand that there is a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God. Kingdom being the king's domain where the king rules and reigns. And so there's two kingdoms right now at work in the world around us. There's the first kingdom, which was the kingdom of Adam, the kingdom of man. And there's the kingdom of God. And when God first established the kingdom of man, he established it to be the kingdom of God. But instead of allowing it to be the kingdom of God, Adam said, nope, I'm going to make it my kingdom. It's going to be what I want to do. And so from that time until now, there has been a constant battle going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And the kingdom of God is with us here today. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you, speaking to the believers. And so there is always going to be a now and not yet aspect to the kingdom. The kingdom is now. But the kingdom is not yet what it's going to be. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is you are blind to the kingdom of God. You can't see the things of God. You can't see them. And immediately in verse, so we need to understand that what Nicodemus is thinking when he hears the kingdom of God. I got a quote from a guy named D.A. Carson. He's a commentator. He says this, to a Jew with the background of Nicodemus, And the convictions of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age 
and to experience the eternal resurrection life. So for a Jewish person, the kingdom of God was going to be when Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom here on earth, rebuilds the temple, and sets the Jewish people up to rule and reign over the world. And in Nicodemus' mind, that's the kingdom that he's looking for. So when Jesus says you can't see the kingdom, Nicodemus is immediately thinking to the end times. But what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see is there's more than meets the eye. There's more to the kingdom of God than the physical world around you. It it works spiritually as well. And so in the end of time, when we get new bodies to go with our new spirits, then that kingdom will be completely and glorified, I don't even know how to say that word, glorifically, no, that's not a word, established in us as beings. We will have a new body, a new spirit. We will be completely whole, and we will have a world that will never fade away, that will never die, will never get sick, will never have sin involved in it ever again. And that is when the kingdom will be completely established. Well, God, if you were in this room today and God has planted his spirit within you, that kingdom has already been established inside of you. And for the rest of your life, that kingdom is going to be coming out. And at the end of time, that kingdom will be fulfilled in all of us. But Nicodemus's problem is, is that Nicodemus is only looking for that physical kingdom when Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom that he cannot yet see. He's blind to it. And so look what he says. He says, verse 4, says this. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus is immediately proving to Jesus that he is blind. He says, Jesus knows the heart of all men. But what did he say? Jesus, how am I going to be born again? I cannot climb back up into my mother's womb and be pushed out again. Now, we may think that's silly, but he's drawing it to the rational conclusion of what he hears with his physical ears. What are you talking about, Jesus, being born again? I can't go back into my mom and come back out. I can't start over again. The past is the past. What do you mean being born again? For a man like Nicodemus, entering the kingdom of God did not have to do with the transformation of an individual character but with participation in the resurrection life of the new order that God would powerfully bring about at the end of time. So to Nicodemus, the kingdom of God is something that's out there and he can't grasp that it's in here too. He doesn't have the spiritual heart, the spiritual mind, the spiritual eyes to grasp those realities. So what does he do? He clings to the physical. What do you mean born again? I can't, I, my mom, I can't go back into my mom and be born again. It is very important that we realize this now and not yet expect of the kingdom. Nicodemus is proving his blindness. His reasoning is spiritual or physical, not spiritual. Amen. He's trying to reason with his natural understanding. And guys, it boils down to this. In three, four weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. And there is no scientific way to prove resurrection from the dead. 
There is no amount of psychology, biology, anatomy, physiology, geology, or whatever ology you want to study that can explain that empty grave in Jerusalem. It can't be explained. They can try to explain what's wrong with you when you're sick. You go to the doctor, you get all kind of testing, and they can give you all kind of suggestions and all kind of explanations about what's wrong. But to understand the things of God, we must understand them through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God, and that can't be done with physical eyes. It has to be done spiritually. The Spirit has to be at work in us. The Spirit has to open our eyes to it. The Spirit has to reveal it to us. And the Spirit has to implant it in our hearts so that we can understand it. And Nicodemus is showing that he is not thinking spiritually. He's thinking physically. So, um, verse 5 says, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says it again. Remember I was talking about how George Whitfield kept saying, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. Well, maybe he got that from Jesus. Look at uh, John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said, you must be born again. John 3, 5. Jesus answered and said, you must be born again. John 3, 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. He said it three times to him, didn't he? Well, not only that, the entire New Testament proclaims that truth to us. I want to quickly look at some passages of Scripture, if you want to look on the screen there with me. First one we look at is Titus 3, 5. This is Paul writing. He said, he saved us. Who saved us? God, Jesus saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of, what's that word? Regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. All right, let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at verse 23 of that same chapter. For you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but an imperishable seed that is through the living and the enduring word of God. First John, same writer as the book of John we're studying now. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Verse uh, uh, 3.9 says this, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What that means is the new new creation that you are in Christ does not sin. The sin that remains in you now is the old Adam that you used to be before God saved you. The new man doesn't sin. It's only the old man that sins. Verse John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, we learned that word a couple weeks ago, didn't we? What does it mean to be beloved? You are loved. Let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Chapter 5 of 1 John 5, one says this, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him, right? I can't I tell you the number of times that my granddad said, Son, be nice to your sister. Love your sister. And I would pull her hair and kick her and holler at her. And to this day, me and my sister, we, we love one another, but we don't get along like my granddad thought we should. 
You know, that's a shame because we're flesh and blood. She's my only, I have seven brothers and sisters, but I have one sister is truly my mom and my dad's offspring. One full-blooded sister. And I should love her. Why? Because she's my blood. Well, the reality is if you're in this room and you are a child of God, you are a part of the family of God, you should love the people in this room as much as you love any of your blood family. Now, that's not something we do. I'm just being honest with you as children of God. We have problems loving the people of God. But John says, if you are born of God, you will love the children of God. All right. John 5, 18 is the last verse of that text that we're looking at. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So over and over again, Paul, Peter, John, the entire New Testament, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and all through the scriptures, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be regenerated, you must have a new heart, you must be born of God, you must be born from above. It echoes out through the halls of heaven. If you want to be saved, God has to do something. He reaches down and he saves you. Now, you say, well, that means I just don't have to do anything. Nope. What did Nicodemus do? He came to Jesus. Once we realize that the shepherd is calling us, we come to him. He gives us that heart. He gives us those eyes to see. He gives us that mind to think. And he gives us the willingness and the desire to walk away from the old person that we were and walk into Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. So Nicodemus is being reminded over and over again in John 3, 5 that regeneration uh, is, is definitely preached throughout all of Scripture. Uh, Nicodemus is being reminded that you have to be born again. So in verse 6, it says that John chapter 3, verse 6 says this. And for those of you who are part of our Sunday school class this morning, you will appreciate this verse because it says that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right? We learned in our Sunday school class this morning that God created us and we are uh, a dichotomy. We have a soul or spirit and we have a body. And God created us to be one, one soul, one body. And when sin came in, it ripped apart that distinction and now we have all this imbalance in us. Some of us are more spiritual and some are more physical. Some are more physical. Some are more spiritual. And the reality is, is that when we bury our loved ones, that we are never more aware of that dichotomy. We put our loved ones in the ground and their spirits go to be with the Lord. And Jesus is saying the distinction between the flesh and the spirit is just as clear as the reality of life and death. You are a fleshly person and you are a spiritual person. And what does Jesus say later on? Your flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. It is the spirit that inherits the kingdom of God. And that's why he gives you a new body to walk into the new kingdom with. So we see that we are a dichotomy of flesh. Two births, you were born from your mother and you must be born from above. Two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And we learn today that regeneration is salvation. It's a translation 
from our fallen state to our eternal destiny. We are pulled out of the kingdom of man and we are brought into the kingdom of God. So in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, they were one whole person, soul and flesh. Sin brought in all kind of destruction. And now there's a battle going on between our very souls and flesh. But not only that, my flesh is fallen and my spirit is fallen. And through the preaching of God's word and the power of God's Holy Spirit, he reaches into a fallen body, a fallen spirit, and places a new spirit. He creates a new spirit within me. He plants new life inside of this old dead body. And one day that new life will inherit the kingdom with a new body. It's a beautiful picture of God's saving work and what he does for us. So we're going to have to close with that. I did have another passage of scripture that I wanted to share with you, but we won't have time today. Verse 7 says this. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, what does that marvel mean? To marvel means to be in awe of. To marvel means to be amazed at. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, don't let your physical understanding keep you from grasping a spiritual understanding. Don't let your physical body keep you in such awe and amazement that you never grasp the reality that there is something beyond my physical understanding. God sent his son, his only begotten son, to die on a cross to save a people for himself. And now this day, this very day, this very morning as we sit in this room, through the proclamation of that gospel, through the proclamation of that truth, the spirit of God is drawing a people to himself. And it's a beautiful picture of God's work of salvation. And if you're in this room today and you have never trusted God, and you know that the things that I've been saying to you are true, it is because God is already at work in you. And all he commands of us is to turn from sin and self and to simply turn and trust Christ. To turn from sin and self and to turn and trust Christ is not what saves us. It is an evidence that we are being saved. We are responding in our works to the work that God has done. So what have we learned today? You must be born again. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, there is so much of your word that we do not understand. And we often have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear and minds that can't see and grasp. But we are thankful that your spirit is at work in us and in the people around us. My prayer is that every man and woman in this room does know your salvation. My prayer is that if there be someone here today who does not know your salvation, that you would do your work. So please be with us in the coming days as we continue to learn more about you, as we continue to walk with you, as we continue to embrace uh, your grace and your mercy. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.